I want us to start this morning with a little bit of a thought exercise. So imagine you had to tell your story. You had to write your autobiography, but you only have two sentences to do it. How would you think that through? How would you narrow that down? I once had an older gentleman tell me that one of the more freeing pieces of advice and counsel that he ever got was when he was a young man from an older man. When he was stressed out about something, this older man said, you need to learn not to stress or worry about these things because you're going to find as you get older that one day you'll be able to look back on some of these things that seem so overwhelming and so difficult and that, like, they were never going to end and you'll be able to summarize them in just a couple sentences. And while that sounds nice and sounds very freeing and can be when it comes to, to stress about situations and circumstances, it does leave a little something out in the big story of life. Because how would we be able to reduce decades of a life lived and all the nuances and all the circumstances and all the things that have happened to form us into who we are and reduce that down to two simple phrases? It seems impossible. And that's where the amazing power of Scripture comes in and blows us away. Because that's exactly what happens in Genesis Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. One introduction, two simple statements, so much information. These two verses contain in them so much about the character and the nature and the beauty and the power and the majesty of God. And so this morning, we're going to step back and we are going to let God introduce himself. Not saying that in the sense that God needs our permission to introduce himself, but sometimes we have the bad habit of coming to passages like this that especially if you've grown up in or around church that are so familiar, we come in with all of our preconceived notions and we can cloud what God is saying with all the things that we think that we already know. And so we're going to step back and listen as God gives us his grand introduction introduces himself in a way that only he can. And I want us to go ahead and prepare now to be amazed at all we'll see from these two verses of Scripture as God puts on display the character of who he is, how he works, and what he's doing in our world. And so this morning, we're going to look at several adjectives that describe God, several characteristics that he reveals to us through these opening lines of his very big story as we look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, it's amazing how much you can do with so little. We see that all the way through scripture. As you take something that seems so ordinary and something that seems so small and make something so great out of it. And so, God, over these next two weeks, as we spend two Sundays in these two verses, help us to see you the way that you call us to see you. 
to look at the incredible depths of Scripture as you reveal so many incredible and awe-inspiring things about who you are to us. And God, I pray that we would be completely and totally blown away as we start to realize the kind of God that we get to worship, the kind of God who created us and loves us and sustains us. So, Father, we do ask that you bless the reading of your word, that you help us to step out of the way and allow Scripture to teach us such deep and important and wonderful things about who you are, and that they would shape the way that we worship you, the way that we respond to you, and then the way that we go out and love and serve the people that you have created in your image. So speak, because we're listening. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing we're going to see this morning is that God is an eternal God. That he is the eternal God. And when we come to these pages of scripture, when we open up to this very first moment in God's big story, in this big narrative of scripture, the very first thing that is said is, in the beginning, God. And we spent a lot of time looking at that last week as we were talking about these beginnings. And as we approach those four words, we find that the very first thing that Scripture tells us about God, the very first thing that Scripture communicates about who God is and what God is like, the very first thing the Bible tells us is that God exists, that he is, that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. This isn't a hypothetical sort of situation. The Bible doesn't open up with a question saying, if there was a God, what would he be like? Or, it's possible that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with the four words saying, in the beginning, God. And it forces us, at the very first moment of reading the Bible, to make a decision. What do I believe about those four words? Do I believe that in the beginning, God? Do I believe that God exists? Do I believe that God is real? Do I believe that this God exists and that this God is real? And so Genesis opens up, not with simple information, but with a challenge, stating as a fact that there is a holy, omnipotent God who stands at the beginning of creation and speaks it all into motion and says, here is this information, what are you going to do with it? Because the way that we respond to that question about if we believe that this is true changes and shapes the way that we see everything else that happens inside of Scripture. But not only that, our response to Genesis chapter 1 has with it a foundation for everything else that not only we believe, but everything that we say, everything that we do, and everything that happens throughout the course of our lives. And everything that follows in Scripture hinges on those four words, that in the beginning, there is God, and he is who he is. He's not a creation of our minds. He's not a figment of our imaginations. He is not something that we have established so that we can just put all of our unanswerable questions on this mysterious thing known as God. Genesis says, no, no, there is a God. He does exist, and this is who he is. And so Genesis demands a decision. 
And what I love about the whole picture of Scripture, because we see the continuity from Genesis to Revelation, inside of Scripture, when the biblical authors would make their case for the existence of God, so often they would come back to the beginning. Even Paul wrote that God's invisible attributes can be seen throughout his creation, that creation itself is evidence for the existence of God. And so Genesis assumes that God exists, that he is real, and that we are not here to tell him who he is, but he is going to tell us who he is. And so all of us have to come to that intersection this morning, that in the beginning, God, do I believe in this God or do I not? And the answer to that question changes everything. The scripture doesn't just give us this idea that there is a God and that he's some sort of mysterious force out in the distance, but immediately Genesis begins revealing stuff about his character, about who he is and about how he exists and what he's like. And the first thing that we see as we look beneath the surface of this statement in the beginning God is we recognize that not only does God exist, but Genesis tells us that he has always existed. Francis Schaeffer wrote this in his book on Genesis in space and time. He says, although Genesis begins in the beginning, that does not mean there was not anything before that. And then he looks to John 17, 24 to make his case. He says, Jesus prays to God, the father saying, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus says that God the Father loved him prior to creation of anything else. There is therefore something that reaches back into eternity, back before the phrase in the beginning. Christ existed, and he had glory with the Father, and he was loved by the Father before in the beginning. And so Genesis doesn't say that in the beginning God was created. So that in the beginning, God was created. And this is our beginning. This is the beginning of space and time. This is the beginning of our world and our history. But this is not the beginning of our God. Genesis makes the claim that God has existed for all of eternity. And scripture affirms that over and over again, teaching us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God exists now and will exist forever and has existed for eternity past. And so not only is Genesis calling us to believe in this God, but to also believe and accept that he has existed forever. That he is the uncreated creator. That there is no one before him that he has just always been. And this is a hard ask that the book of Genesis is putting on us because we don't feel like, most of the time at least, that we live in the world of forever. We don't feel like we live in eternity. We all feel like we live on a timeline. That's what Jesus laid in to Peter about when Peter didn't want Jesus to go to do the things that he had to do in Jerusalem and die. Jesus says, you're not thinking about eternal things. You're thinking about temporary things. And the same can be true for all of us because we have a start and we assume that we're going to have a finish. We know that lives begin and lives end. We know that things have their seasons, that things have their process. And so everything that we know and everything that we understand outside of God has a beginning and has an end. And now Genesis is saying that is true of everything except for God. And he has always been. And while that is a hard ask, it's not an impossible one. And when we think about it, it's a lot more logical and makes a lot more sense than maybe when we first start to ask that question. 
But when we talk about the eternal nature of God, not only does it teach us something profound and mind-blowing, this mystery of God's eternal existence, it starts to reveal other things about God's character. And that's what I love about Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is all of this is stacked in here, almost like Russian nesting dolls. And when we open up one thing about God, we find something else, and we find something else, and we find something else, and he begins to reveal more and more and more about who he is. And so while we recognize that God exists and that God is eternal, then we start to realize what that means about who God is and his nature. God's eternal existence teaches us that God is supreme, meaning that God has no authority over him. There's no creator that brought God into existence. God has no parents. God is the supreme force of the universe and answers to no one but himself. There is no one above God, no authority beyond God, no one worthy of worship as we're going to see over the next couple weeks beside God, that he is supreme and awesome and unique in his nature. And because of that, we also learn that not only is God supreme, but he's ultimate. Because if God is the beginning of all things, if God is the uncreated creator, then everything that has been created was created by him. And so not only does he not have authority above him, but there is no other authority beside him. That he has authority over everything that he has ever created. Paul says that in Christ all things were created through him and by him and for him. And so God is the ultimate authority in all of the universe. We can easily gather from God's eternal nature that he is omniscient, that he's all wise. Not only is he the source of ultimate authority, but he is the source of total and complete wisdom. He has an eternity's worth of wisdom in his grasp. And that's why it makes sense when we're taught in scripture that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. We can easily see that God is sovereign. That because he is the eternal creator of the world and of the universe, that he holds all those things in the palm of his hand and nothing happens that happens outside of God's control and outside of God's governance. And we can also see here, as we're going to explore in depth over the next several weeks, he has a plan. And he's had a plan that he has had before the beginning, before the foundations of the world. And so God's eternal nature is something that reveals such incredible depths about who he is and how he works and how he acts. And the eternal nature of God should mystify us. We're going to talk in depth next week about one of the greatest mysteries inside of Scripture, that God is triune, that God is one God and three persons, and that's a hard thing to wrap our minds around. But sometimes when we encounter these mysteries of God, instead of frustrating us, that we should allow them to amaze us and cause us to realize that, no, this God is not just like me, just a little better. This God is something completely holy and set apart, and he is worthy of my awe and of my wonder. It should captivate us and draw us into a total trust and a total comfort, knowing that we are in the hands of an eternal God who has seen everything there is to see, who knows everything there is to know, who holds all of this in the palm of his hands, and just like Amy said, has the power to create planets, but has the compassion to listen to us and to care for us and to love us. And so the same God who keeps the universe in motion and who has, from before the beginning, 
the God who has sustained all that there is for as long as it has existed, he is certainly capable of holding us and caring for us in our time of need. And so because of that, he's worthy of our trust, he's worthy of our admiration, and he's worthy of our praise. He is the eternal God. We also see in this passage of scripture that God is a creative God, that he is the creative God. I like art. I think most people in some way, shape, form, or fashion would all say that we like art. And art is a really awesome and really important and really cool thing. Because when we look at it, it starts to draw a lot of different things to our minds. We start to look at works of art like these. Some that are ancient, some that are modern, some that are somewhere in between. And we start to try to wonder about the author's or the artist's process. How did they think about these things? How did they create these things? How do they have the kind of talent and the kind of wonderful giftedness to be able to create something essentially out of nothing, to create something that didn't exist before and then put it on paper or sculpt it into an incredible, beautiful sculpture or build something up? How do people do what they do and where do these thoughts come from? Because we are impressed by artists. And we can try to get into the process, and we can try to get into the understanding there, but it's, it's really kind of hard to grasp. When asked about his process, the artist Michelangelo, who painted that picture on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, picture seems like a really, like, <laughs> it's probably a little more than just painted a picture. That's a pretty incredible thing that he was responsible for there. But when he was asked about the statue of David, he gave a very beautiful answer but also one that's not particularly helpful for most people. When he was asked about his process for creating the statue of David, he said, I just took everything that wasn't David and removed it, which is great for sermon illustrations about sanctification, and it goes really well on those. It's not really good about handling how this art actually came into existence and how he created this beautiful sculpture out of, a, out of just a big piece of stone. But the artist's process is an incredible thing. But... We do know, ultimately, that every bit of art that's come into existence is influenced by or based on or coming from something else. All artists have influences, whether it's the world around them, whether it's other artists that have come before them, something that lives inside of them. All artists have some sort of influence that helps bring this art out. But God is different. We could talk about God being an artist, but I think that's a bit of an oversimplification. And again, Francis Schaeffer helps us to understand this. He says the difference between the artist and God are overwhelming. Because we, being finite or temporary, can only create in the external world out of which is already there. The artist reaches over and uses his brush and his pigments. The engineer uses steel and pre-stressed concrete for his bridge. Or the flower arranger uses flowers, the moss, and rocks, and the pebbles that were already there. But God is quite different. Because he is infinite or eternal. He created originally out of nothing. There was no mass, no energy particles before he created. We work through the manifestation of our fingers. He, in contrast, created merely, as it says in Hebrews, by his word. Here is power beyond all we can imagine in the human finite realm. He was able to create and shape merely by his spoken word. 
Genesis 1 reveals to us the awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping creativity of God. If we're amazed as we see these timeless works of art and wonder about that process, how much more should we be amazed by the God who looked at nothing and created everything that we have before us? Look at the world here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, The world, the earth, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God looked at our world and the universe as a blank canvas. And before there was anything, God had a plan on how he was going to shape the universe and set it into motion. And before there were colors, God knew how he was going to create those colors and what they were going to look like. I have trouble choosing what highlighter I'm going to use to color in my books. Now, if you want a recommendation on highlighter, zebra mild liners are awesome. They are really, really good. Because I don't like the really bright highlighters because they stand off and after a while start to hurt your eyes, especially if you're reading the same thing over and over again. The mild liners do this great thing where they take really muted colors like grays and browns and some kind of off reds, and they're very dull, but they're still very bold when you put them down on paper. And so it's a great balance of having a highlighter where you can really see the words, but also it doesn't stress your eyes over time. But still, even once I've found the mild liners, I have a lot of trouble deciding which one I want to use on paper because it's a little bit overwhelming. And yet God looked at a blankness of nothing, and he said, I know exactly what color I want to use here after I create that color. And he put every color and everything exactly where it should go and put his creativity and his beauty on display. He took what was dark and empty and void, and he filled it with light and color. And he shaped it into something beautiful, and he filled it with all the things that it would need in the universe and in our world. And he did that all out of his own mind and out of his own heart and spoke it into existence. Genesis does not reveal God to be some sort of impersonal force who mechanically put the universe into motion, but reveals God as a divine artist who sees what should be and puts it exactly where it should go, and that every act of creativity that has happened after that is simply a reflection of the ultimate creator who put all of this into motion. And so we need to learn to see and to celebrate the creativity of God, to recognize God's first action was an act of creativity as he reveals himself in Scripture. And so we should worship God as a creative God. But not only does that change the way that we see and understand God, but that changes the way that we see and understand ourselves. Because we're not here by random circumstances or cause and effect or some sort of chain of reactions that's happened to just mysteriously bring us into existence. But the psalmist knew when he said that I was created, that God knit me together in my mother's womb, and that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so if you are here, you are the work of the same creator who designed the color green, and he has designed you as well. And that is something to hold on to in our hearts and to recognize that we were created by a loving and compassionate God. And our worship should express that as well. And we're taught to be little creators, that creativity should be a part of who we are. And that should be a part of how we worship. And now you may say, well, I'm not a really creative person. And I'm not saying that you have to go home and sit in a quiet room and turn on your favorite Lauren Daigle song and finger paint in your journal to be some sort of creative artist. I'm saying that anytime we bring something into existence, 
whether it's a piece of work at our jobs, whether it's an assignment that we turn in at school, whether it's bringing children into the world, whether it's building something or creating something or painting something or doing something that even seems very mundane, any time that we are involved in a creative process, we should recognize that that is part of our image that God has made us in, that is his image that he has given us so that we can worship him and reflect his glory, and we should be in awe when we see that take place. And so let's view every opportunity to create as an act of reflecting God's glory. And when we worship God, not worshiping him as an impersonal force somewhere out in the distance who created the world out of apathy and boredom, but recognizing a God who passionately and lovingly painted our universe into existence, including us. And as we feel that love and that creativity inside of us, worship God with awe and wonder. Because he is eternal And he is creative. And also here we see that God is gracious, that he is a gracious God. This world, again, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, says that it was without form. Some translations say formless there. It was without form. It was void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, especially after coming off such an an incredible picture of God's creative beauty. And as we're about to, in the next couple weeks, get into this actual act of creation that God went through in Genesis chapter 1, we can look at what takes place in verse 2 as something that is unfinished and something that might seem like a negative. The world being formless and empty and dark. But God. Now, we don't know much about before the beginning because God chose his story here other than knowing that God had a plan and that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are eternally existent and love one another and were in their own glory. We don't know much about before the existence other than God was there and that was enough. Scripture teaches us that God is and was and always will be perfect, lacking in nothing, holy and set apart. And so as we see the world in Genesis 1, verse 2, we see a world where there are no temples. There are no trees. There are no buildings or voices lifting up praises to God, and there is no need for them either. God didn't need all of this stuff. God was perfect and holy and existed for an eternity long before we ever came along. And not only was he doing okay, he was doing perfectly. But while God did not need those things, while God did not need us, he wanted us. He wanted all the things that he created. And when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that creation, God's first action in time and space, creation was his also first act of love. It was his first act of affection. And it was his first act of of grace. We talk a lot about grace in the Christian church as well we should. But grace is simply getting something that we don't deserve. And we know that's what salvation is, that we can't earn our salvation. And so Jesus came to bring salvation into the world so that we didn't have to work for it, but that we accept it freely as a gift that we don't deserve. And sometimes we can think about that as the ultimate act of grace, and it certainly is. But long before even God sent Christ into the world to save us, he had already been far more gracious to us than we deserve because he created us when he didn't need to. God knew everything. 
He knew everyone. He knew Genesis 3 long before Genesis 3 took place. He knew all of the things that you and I were going to do individually. He knew all of our brokenness. He knew all of our sin. He knew all of our struggles. And yet, in spite of all that, he still loved us and longed for us and wanted us. And so because of that, he created us. It is easy to feel distant. It is easy to feel like God is somewhere else, somewhere off in the distance. Sometimes we can feel unwanted or unseen or maybe even unloved by God because there's so much inside of us that tries to convince us that we aren't who we're supposed to be and that God is not really as loving as he says he is. But Genesis screams to the contrary. Genesis says, no, 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 no. This is how much God loves you. This is how much God wants you. This is how much God knows you. That he looked at the entire expanse of the universe and he looked from the beginning to the end in the full spanse of time and space. And he says, do you know what I want? Do you know what I want to be a part of this good and awesome creation that I am bringing into existence? I want you enough to fearfully and wonderfully design you And bring you into this world. The gracious God of Genesis created this world and created me and created you as an act of love and affection. Before you drew a breath, before light peaked over the horizon of the world for the first time ever, God knew you and he wanted you. And that's the kind of God who was willing to give everything to save you. We talked about the importance of looking for the gospel, of looking for Jesus in every passage of scripture, and we find it clear here as we see this act of grace, as we see this gospel in Genesis of the God who wants us when we are undeserving of being wanted. And that's the message of the book of John when he says, in the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God himself became one of us for us because he knew that we couldn't do it on our own. We're going to talk towards the end of this series about one of the strangest stories in scripture is people decide that they're going to build a tower to get to God and they realize very quickly that's not something that can happen. And yet God still looked at us and he says, you have no way to get to me, and so I am coming to you. And even though you don't deserve it, even though you can't obtain it, I am going to freely give my love. The Bible says that he lavishes that love on us and saves us by his grace if we trust in Christ. And so the call of Genesis is the same as the call of John, is the same as the call of Ephesians, to look at the God who wanted us and desired us despite our sin and our shame and made a way for us to come and to become his children, to become his sons and daughters and to run to that God and to cling to that God and so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before those words in John are just as true now as they ever have been that God loved the world that he created even though it was broken because of what we've done that God loved you even though you've sinned and fallen short of his glory so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, won't perish, but will have eternal life. Don't have to earn something from God, but can receive as an act of grace, salvation, and grace upon grace upon grace. 
And so if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ before, then know that this is a God worthy of your trust, worthy of your belief. And don't leave here this morning without talking with me or with Adam about what it means to follow Christ and to be loved by the eternal, creative, and gracious God of the universe. So what do we do with this kind of God? How do we respond to an eternal, creative, gracious God who is supreme and ultimate and all-wise and sovereign? How do we even begin to worship him? The psalmist helps us out. In Psalm 136, starting in verse 1, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist says you have a God who spread the earth over the waters who loved you with a steadfast, unwavering love. And so what is your response to be? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And so we need to be people who are consistently thankful for the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. The God who took the formless, empty, dark world and shaped it and formed it into something perfect for us. The God who looked throughout time and space and knew us before we drew a breath and yet loved us the same, loved us enough to create us and had a plan to save us. That God is worthy of our constant admiration and thanksgiving. There is enough. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, these three simple sentences, to endlessly praise God, to endlessly give God thanks. And so let's be those people. Let's be the kind of people who see God for who he is, for recognizing his characteristics and his attributes, to see his creative design and be in awe and be in wonder and constantly, day after day, hour after hour, moment by moment, second by second, breath by breath, giving God thanks for who he is and what he's done. Because if the Bible ended at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we would still have enough to praise God from this moment for all of eternity. And so let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of church with our lives charged by thanksgiving, recognizing that the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and that he chose to make that known to us in his introductory sentences, in his big story. Let's pray.